Hello and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I'm talking today about Muslim objections to the Bible and Christianity. Muslims reject the Bible, the scriptures of the Jews and Christians, as false and corrupted. But does the Quran call the Bible corrupt? And the answer is no, there is no verse that says that. The Quran actually affirms the Bible. The Quran chapter 5 verse 68 says, People of the book, you will attain nothing until you observe the Torah and the Gospel, and that which is revealed to you from your Lord. Chapter 9 verse 111. Such is the true promise which he has made them in the Torah, the Gospel and the Quran. And who is more true to his pledge than God? Chapter 62, verse 5. Those to whom the burden of the Torah was entrusted and yet refused to bear it are like a donkey laden with books. The Koran says nothing about the Bible being corrupted. It only accuses the Jews and Christians of not following what it teaches. And then they say, but the Koran comes after the Bible. Therefore, it must supersede the Bible. But here's the thing. So does Baha'ism. So does the Ahmadiyya movement. So does Sikhism and Mormonism. They all came after the Quran. Do their religious beliefs trump the Quran? Will the Muslims then reject the Quran and follow these other religions that come afterwards? Just because something comes afterwards doesn't mean we have to accept it. Muslims claim that God originally inspired the Torah, the Psalms and the Gospel, but they've become corrupted. Now, there's no support from either the Bible or the Quran. It's just a modern construct invented by Muslim apologists who have to deal with the massive contradictions between the Bible and the Quran. My question to Muslims is, how can you trust the Quran, if all the other revelations became corrupt. And Muslims then claim that the Quran, chapter 15, verse 9, says that the Quran is protected by God. But what if that verse is corrupted? What if it's not scripture at all? You see, the whole of Islam is based on circular reasoning. They say, we believe the Koran because it's, it's God's word. And we say, well, why do you believe it's God's word? And they'll say, because Muhammad said so. And then you say, well, okay, how do you know Muhammad was God's prophet? And they'll say, because the Koran says so. So it's circular reasoning. But I'm going to look at a series of Bible passages or questions that they make to attack the Bible. And I ask these questions. Does the Quran teach something similar? So are they being hypocrites? Is their interpretation of the verse correct? What's the correct interpretation of this verse? And does this Bible verse have any effect or correlation on Christian behaviour and activity? Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 says, He who pleads his cause first seems right until another comes and questions him. So 
The attack number one is Bible repetition. In Akbar Didat's book, he says that 2 Kings chapter 19 is the same as Isaiah chapter 37. And he therefore says it must be plagiarism. This, of course, is rather stupid and illogical. Just because there are parallel passages in the Bible saying the same thing doesn't prove they're wrong. God is the author of the Bible. The Christian position on the Bible is that it is fully the word of God and fully the word of man. It was written by men who were inspired by God to write what they were writing. The Bible is not a science book. It is a spiritual book and it teaches us how to have a right relationship with God, how to live the right way. And there are many parts of the Bible that are parallel or repeat some of the same things, such as in the four Gospels or the books of Samuel, where it repeats things that are in uh, Chronicles, Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah. And furthermore, what does this have to do with inspiration? If Kings and Isaiah say the same thing in some passages, that doesn't uh, prove anything of what he's claiming. The Bible is a collection of, the, of books, and the fact that they support the same events happening debunks his assumption. And in any case, we find a lot of repetition in the Quran itself. For example, in Surah 55, there's a lot of repetition that's used there. It says, which of your Lord's blessings would you deny? And it keeps saying that at the end of every verse in chapter 55 of the Quran. Can we therefore say that the Quran is full of plagiarism? Because that's hypocritical. The next attack is to claim that the Bible promotes incest. Well, nowhere in scripture are we ever told to commit incest. The Bible teaches that all humans are descended from Adam and Eve. The Quran also teaches that all humans are descended from Adam and Eve. And science and evolution teaches that all humans are descended from a single woman who's referred to as mitochondrial Eve. If that's the case, then it means the first generations of humans would have practiced incest or the human race would not exist. And the laws of incest did not apply then. The Bible tells us that Abraham was married to his half-sister Sarah, Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. And it tells the story that Lot got drunk and fathered sons with his two daughters in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 and 38. These are not commands to go and do the same thing. They're history stories about what really happened. They're recorded events in history. They're not commands to do the same thing. And the laws against incest were introduced centuries later in the time of Moses in Leviticus chapter 18. And these laws 
against incest are maintained by Christians. In Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, the early apostles got together to decide which parts of the law of Moses still applied to today. And one of those laws was the laws of sexual immorality in marriage. So, the New Testament condemns incest. And Leviticus chapter 18 verse 6 says not to even marry close relatives. And historically Christians have condemned the marrying and intermarrying of close relatives. And this has prevented inbreeding and clan rivalries. And it was the church in medieval times that outlawed the marrying of cousins. And when that happened, people stopped being little cliques of, of tribes killing each other, as we often see in Afghanistan or the Arab world. Instead, people would marry someone in their same country or even from another country, and that prevented inbreeding. Whereas in Islam, marrying cousins is very common, but it leads often to mental and physical defects. Now, the Koran condemns incest in chapter 4, verses 21 to 24, but it never forbids the marrying of cousins. So, contrary to their claim that the Bible commands incest, it does not, and it condemns it. It was practiced by very early humans, but it's no longer in practice. And they also claim that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 36 is commanding a man to marry his daughter. It is not. It's saying that if a man feels tempted to sin with his virgin fiancé, let them get married instead of sinning. Well, well, well. Their next attack is to say that the Bible slanders the holy prophets of God. And they give examples of Noah got drunk in Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 to 29, or Lot committed incest with his daughters, Genesis 19, 30 to 38, or that David committed murder and adultery in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Well, my question to the Muslims is, how do Muslims know these events never happened? Where does the Quran say? David never committed adultery. Where does the Quran say Noah never got drunk? Show us the verse that says that because it's not in there. Were you there thousands of years ago watching everything uh, King David and Noah did with their lives? So who should we believe? The ancient historical stories in the Bible or an individual like you who has never witnessed these events? So, secondly, the Bible never claims that God's prophets were sinlessly perfect, and nor does the Koran. And the Koran in chapter 80, verses 1 to 15, Muhammad is condemned for the sin of shunning a blind man who sought his help. So while Jesus used to help the blind and heal them, Muhammad would shun them. The Quran in chapter 40, verse 55, chapter 48, verse 2, and chapter 47, verse 19, talk about Muhammad's sins. 
And then the Quran also condemns the sins of Jonah in chapter 21, verse 87, chapter 37, verse 130, and chapter 68, verse 46, for his sinful disobedience of God. And finally, in the Hadith, Muhammad, in Bukhari, volume 4, number 641, he said, There is none born among the offspring of Adam, but Satan touches. A child therefore cries loudly at the time of birth because of the touch of Satan, except for Mary and her child. So here we see Muhammad was talking about the effects of sin on all people. Islam vehemently rejects original sin, but it's proven that every human that's ever lived is a sinner, the only exceptions being Jesus and Mary. Muslims deny original sin because original sin proves the need for a saviour from our sins. Uh, the Bible teaches original sin. Psalm 51.5, David says, For behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked go astray from the womb. They are wayward as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Every human being that's ever lived has committed sin. Out of the billions of humans that have ever lived, how come every one of them turns out to be guilty of sins? Selfishness, greed, indifference, anger, fights, lusts. We've all been guilty of these things. If Islam is true and they deny original sin, then how come Islam teaches that all women should wear veils or headscarves or burqas because of the lusts of all men? Why are millions of young girls forced to have genital mutilation if they're supposedly sinless? Why is the Koran full of threats of hellfire if sin is not a universal problem? Why are the most devout Islamic nations which they should be the least uh, sinful, why are the most devout Islamic nations full of violence, jihad, domestic abuse, female genital mutilation, imposed female modesty, sexual assault, corruption, and overall unhappiness? Shouldn't Islam do away with all these miseries? Why is there a judgment day? If everyone except Jesus and Mary is a sinner, why do Muslims deny original sin? If Muhammad was rebuked for his sins he committed, and he is supposedly the best man who ever lived, what does that say about the rest of us? Muhammad was a very serious sinner. Bukhari, volume 8, number 319, says, I heard Allah's apostles say, By Allah, I ask for forgiveness from Allah and turn to him in repentance more than 70 times a day. And in Bukhari, volume 6, number 3, he saw, claims he saw Jesus in heaven, who supposedly said to Muhammad, Muhammad, the slave of Allah, whose 
past and future sins were forgiven by Allah. The Quran chapter 93 verse 7 says, Did he not find you in error and judge you? Quran chapter 4 verse 27 says, For man was created weak. The Quran chapter 114 says, I seek refuge in the Lord of men from the mischief of the slinking prompter who whispers in the hearts of men. And the Quran chapter 90 verse 2 says, We created man to try him with afflictions. So contrary to the claim that human beings are not sinners and there's no problem of sin, we can see in both the Bible and the Quran that that is not the case. The next attack that's made is that the Bible contains pornographic literature. Wow! It's claimed that the Song of Songs, Ezekiel chapter 23, and stories about rape, such as 2 Samuel 13, 1 to 22, the rape of Tamar, the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34, or the sexual liaison between Judah and Tamar, a different Tamar, in Genesis 38. It's contained claim that that is pornography. Pornography is literature or film that is designed to arouse sexual feelings. I tell you what, there is nothing sexually arousing about any of these Bible verses that are written there. Akmar Didart claims they are. Maybe he gets sexually aroused reading that. But the Bible contains tragic stories about rapes committed by evil men, as well as the consequences for such evil deeds. So the, Quran, the Bible is not saying go out and rape and do you likewise. It's containing stories about it. Ezekiel 23 is God explicitly telling apostate Jews how ugly, shameful and grotesque their sins are. And I've had Muslims who have said to me, do you really believe that Ezekiel 23 is God's word? And I say, yes, I do. And I'm proud of it. Um, furthermore, the Song of Songs is not a sexuality book. Nobody in history has believed it was a sexual book until the 19th century. The historical view of both the Jews and Christians is that the Song of Songs is a spiritual book about the relationship between God and his people. And I've done an in-depth podcast on this book, looking at it through many of the verses. And furthermore, the Koran is guilty of sexually explicit verses that are intended to arouse readers with its descriptions of paradise. So the Quran in chapter 52 verses 10 to 25 talks about beautiful young women and beautiful young boys as fair as virgin pearls that will serve the men in paradise. Also the Quran chapter 76 verses 19 and 20. The Quran in chapter 78 verse 31 says there will be large-breasted huris to give sex to the men in paradise. 
and the Quran allows slave masters to rape their female slaves. The Quran in chapter 4 verse 24. And Muhammad also approved of mutar marriage, which is just a form of prostitution of temporary marriages to, because of the lusts of his followers. So it's hypocritical for them to accuse the Bible of being pornographic when their own Quran says that. The next uh, attack is to say that the Bible can can commands mass murder and genocide in 1 Samuel chapters 14 and 15 where King Saul waged a war of annihilation against the Amalekites. Well, this was a specific command, which was to Saul, against a specific people, the Amalekites, at a specific time over 3,000 years ago. There are no Amalekites anymore. Secondly, we're in the new covenant, which Jesus instituted, where we're to show love and mercy to all people, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. So even if there were some Amalekites in the time of Jesus, that command would no longer apply. In any case, the, even the early Christians interpreted this part of Scripture spiritually to mean to get rid of any sin in your life that will ruin your relationship with God. And I've never heard of any Christians ever using 1 Samuel chapters 14 and 15 to justify genocide against anyone. The Quran, on the other hand, says to wage war against idolaters, chapter 9 verse 5, and to wage war against Jews and Christians in chapter 9 verse 29 till we've been killed or reduced to humiliating lowliness. And that is being continued all over the Muslim world. So there's no evidence of Christians using one Samuel to justify war against Amalekites or anyone else, but there is plenty of evidence of chapter 9 of the Quran being used for jihad. The next uh, attack that's a rather humorous one and quite laughable is the claim that Jesus only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 and 28. Well, if you read the whole passage, you find that Jesus was testing the woman's faith. And if you read throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was bringing Gentiles into the kingdom Secondly, there is physical and spiritual Israel. If you read Romans chapters 9 to 11, and Jesus ministered to Gentiles throughout his ministry. And does the Quran have a parallel passage? Yes, it does. In the Quran chapter 14 verse 4, it says, We have not sent a messenger except in the language of his people. So that's saying that Muhammad was only sent to the Arabs. The next attack is that Jesus said absurd things. That he said to love your enemies, to hate your family. He cursed a fig tree. He said you'd get a hundred wives in the afterlife. He endorsed killing people and he endorsed hand amputation. Well, 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 let's have a look at each of these 
claims. The thing about Jesus is he said many deeply profound things, many things with hidden meanings or spiritual meanings that can be easily misunderstood. And the church, the Catholic Church, has the authority to interpret scripture, not some kook who just reads a few sentences of the Bible and claims this is how you interpret it. Okay, let's have a look at them. Love your enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 47. Why would Jesus say that? Because God loves all people and he wants reconciliation with us all. Loving your enemies does not mean you allow some rapist to break into your house and murder and rape you all. Loving your enemies would mean stopping that person from committing such a heinous sin and also loving your own family to protect them. So it's not some unqualified statement, but it's a general principle. Jesus said he came to divide families. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. Well, Jesus was saying that our love for him must be so great that it must be greater even than the love of our own family. And if, if a family is going to divide over what it thinks of Jesus Christ, then so be it. He said we, they would be divided over whether or not to follow him. He's not saying families should start beating one another up and killing them. He didn't say anything of the sort. The next claim is Jesus cursed a fig tree. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. He found a fig tree that was not bearing fruit in the season it was meant that, that it wasn't going to bear. And because it was not bearing fruit all year round, Jesus cursed it and it died. What did Jesus mean by that and why did he do it? He did it because he was teaching that trees don't bear fruit all year round. And he's saying that he wanted godliness in us where we bear fruit of being his followers all the time, not seasonally like a fig tree. He was simply making a point and furthermore, for those of you who are upset that he cursed a fig tree, fig trees don't have feelings, they don't have emotions like us. It was just a plant, but he was making a point. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 to 31, Jesus said that those who leave house, family, mother and wife for my sake will be compensated a hundredfold in the world to come. So if you misread it and take it literally, the Muslims claim this must mean he was promising a hundred wives in the afterlife. <laughs> no, he was not. He was talking about a hundredfold blessing. And this does not include marriage since there will be no marriage in the afterlife. Matthew chapter 22 verses 29 and 30. So if you're going to read something Jesus said, you have to read it in the light of everything else Jesus said, not in isolation, as well as what the rest of Scripture said. And then they claim that Jesus endorsed killing people in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. He tells the story about the parable of the wicked tenants who 
the master sent servants back to them and they got killed. And then he sent his own son and he was killed. And then he said, now the landowner is going to come and kill them. And this is talking about God judging and letting to death and destruction, which happened to the people that crucified Christ with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's not a command for Christians to go out and kill people. It was a parable as well, and parables had symbolic meanings. They weren't literal commands. And Jesus also said, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus was not being literal because he also explains in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, that it's from the heart that all evil deeds come, not the hand itself or the eye. What it means is you must get rid of anything that will keep you out of heaven, no matter how valuable it is. So Jesus said many deep truths, often with hidden meanings, ambiguous meanings, or parables with great symbolism. Furthermore, when we look at Muhammad, we see his complete absurdities. Muhammad claimed that he chopped the moon in half in Bukhari, volume 2, number uh, 41. He talks about a palm tree that cried, and Muhammad uh, comforted the palm tree. And in volume 4, numbers 830 and 832, he talks about chopping the moon in half. Uh, that's far more absurd and hard to believe than Jesus cursing a fig tree or giving some deep theological meanings to things. The next attack is to say that the Bible is sexist towards women because Paul the Apostle said that women were not to preach in church and have authority over men. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 to 35 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And the answer is, Paul commands husbands also to love their wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed his life for them. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 to 30. And that men and women are of equal value in God's eyes. Galatians 3, 28. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, Paul the Apostle said, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, outcry and slander be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God also in Christ forgave you. So, he said, yes, women were not to have authority over men in the church and were not to be the preachers, but they were involved in reading and prophesying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 5. Also, the most exalted mortal ever in the church is a woman, Mary. And the Catholic Church has several women that are doctors of the church, and Christianity has brought great value to women, dignity, liberty, and advancements. Does the Quran teach equality and loving kindness towards wives? 
The Quran in chapter 4 verse 11 says, A male shall inherit twice as much as a female. The Quran chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 says, If a woman commits fornication, confine her to her house until death overtakes her. But if two men commit homosexuality, punish them. But if they repent, leave them alone. So there we see, if a woman commits indecency, lock her up in her house until she dies. But if two men commit indecency, punish them. But if they repent, leave them alone. The Quran in chapter 4 verse 34 says, Men have authority over women because God has made one superior to the other. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and send them to beds apart and beat them. And the Arabic word is scourge them. It's the, do, it's the same language used for whipping cats camels. There are some mistranslations of the Quran where they add the word lightly, beat them lightly to the text even though it's not in there. And I quoted this verse once and this man got very, very angry. He wasn't even a Muslim and he said, no, look, my copy of the Quran says beat them lightly. Well, why is any form of beating okay? But I explained that's not in the Arabic, and he just put the laughing emoticon, even though he hadn't even bothered studying this verse. But the question is, what were the early Muslims like? Surely they wouldn't have beaten their wives. Well, let's read what the Hadith says. In Bukhari, volume 7, number 715. And it talks about a woman who was divorced, and uh, Abdurrahman bin Azubar al-Karazi married her. Aisha said that the lady came wearing a green veil and complained to her, that's Aisha, of her husband and showed her a green spot on her skin caused by beating. It was the habit of ladies to support each other. So when Allah's messenger came, Aisha said, I have not seen any woman suffering as much as the believing women, that is the Muslim women. Look, her skin is greener than her clothes. So for all the people that want to bash Paul the Apostle because he gave different roles in the preaching in church for men and women, they should consider that Paul the Apostle was a celibate man who commanded husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Muhammad, on the other hand, owned sex slaves and said that if you fear rebellion from a woman, separate from her in the bed and beat her, scourge her. The next attack is to say that Jesus can't have been crucified because Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 says, For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Well, Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He took the curse for us on the cross. The next attack is to say that there are variants in the Bible. Well, the Bible doesn't claim to be a perfectly preserved tablet in heaven. We have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, and every now and again at different places there is a variant. But we still have the overall consensus to know about the original meanings. It's 100% the word of God and 100% the word of men. It was men who wrote these books, inspired and moved by God in the world in which they lived. None of these variants affect a single doctrine. And our faith in the Bible is not based upon knowing the correct variants. All the manuscripts still testify to the overall trustworthiness of what the original text said. An example would be John chapter 3 verse 13 which says no one has ascended up to heaven except the Son of Man, and one variant says, who is from heaven, who is in heaven, or who descended from heaven. It doesn't change the meaning, and it doesn't affect a single doctrine. And in response to that, there are 10,243 variants in the Koran, and the Quran has 37 contradictory versions. And if you want to look that up, have a look at the encyclopedia of the Quranic readings, which is in six volumes. And furthermore, that is not a problem for Christianity, but it is a problem for Islam, because Islam claims to be from a tablet in heaven. An example would be, of variants in the Quran, in the Quran chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, it says they lie in the Hafs version, but in the Quash version, it says they were lied to. In the Quran chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, it says they deceive, the Hafs version. The Quash version says they seek to deceive. In the Quran in chapter 28 verse 48, the Hafs version says two works of magic. And the Quash version says two magicians. And there's just, there are 1,354 differences between the Hafs and Quash versions. That's just two versions of the Quran alone. The next attack is to say, well, there are different Bible canons, which is the correct one. Protestants have 66 books in their Bible. The Greek Orthodox Church has 76 and the catholic church has 73 books and the answer is the catholic church is the oldest church and the biggest uh, christian denomination and they canonized 73 books and that's the true bible the word bible itself was uh, named by a pope syracus who came a generation after pope damasus who canonized the books in 382 AD at the Council of Rome. The next attack is of the accusation of contradictions in the Bible. 
and mostly they'll look at differences between the law of Moses in the Old Testament and the teachings given in the New Testament, such as eating kosher food or the Sabbath day or physical circumcision. In the time of Moses, people had to abstain from eating camels and pigs and shellfish and observe the Sabbath day and be physically circumcised. And in the New Testament, these were no longer required because it was a different covenant. These are not contradictions, but these are changes, and a change is not the same thing as a mistake. They point out to some apparent contradictions of numerical differences in Samuel and Kings with Chronicles. For example, did God send three years of famine in 1 Chronicles 21.12 or seven years of famine in 2 Samuel 24 verse 13? That's not a contradiction because in 2 Samuel chapter 21 verse 1 we're told that there was already a famine of three years that had been going on at that time. And then by the time it gets to chapter 24, it's almost a year. So 2 Samuel is talking about a total of seven years of famine. 1 Chronicles is referring to where they'd already had four years of famine, but were going to have three extra years. So that's simply naming the three more years that were going to come. 2 Samuel is listing the total number of famine years. Another question is how old was Ahaziah when he became king? Was he 22 as 2 Kings 8.26 says or was he 42 as 2 Chronicles chapter 22 verse 2 says? These are not necessarily contradictions. They may be slight variants in the vowels of the Hebrew which did not have them. The other possibility is that kings often began reigning as co-regents with their fathers before their fathers died. Queen Elizabeth II, for example, began reigning in 1952, but she didn't have her coronation as queen until 1953. And so trying to say, okay, such and such a king was this age when he began reigning, there can be overlap from the time they began reigning with their father till their father died and they became the sole uh, monarch. Another uh, one is that King Solomon, did he have 4,000 stalls for horses or 40,000? 2 Chronicles 9.25 says 4,000. 1 Kings 4.26 says he had 40,000 stalls for horses. This is not a contradiction because Solomon was in a constant process of growth and expansion. So there is no contradictions if he had 4,000 stalls at one stage and then he'd expanded it to 40,000. But even if it was a copyist error, it doesn't affect any doctrine that Christians believe. There were other things that appear like contradictions, but when you do a bit of historical research, it falls apart, these accusations. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 and 34, 
says that as Jesus left Jericho, he healed some blind men. But Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43, says that as Jesus was approaching Jericho, he healed some blind men. Was he leaving Jericho or was he approaching Jericho as he did this? Well, archaeologists found that prior to the time of Jesus, in the outside the old city of Jericho, King Herod built a new city also called Jericho that was several kilometres away in 30 BC. Another accusation is the Hittites. The Bible talks a lot about the Hittites, this great nation that lived in the ancient Near East in what is today Turkey and Syria. And there were people like Uriah the Hittite and people laughed at it and said, see, the Bible is full of myths. There's no evidence of any people called the Hittites. Until the 19th century, archaeologists since that time have found thousands of manuscripts and tablets and ancient ruins to prove the existence of the Hittites. The next attack is to say that Deuteronomy has problematic things in it. Well, let's have a look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 11 and 12 says that if two men are fighting and the wife of one man grabs the man by the testicles, cut off her hand. Admittedly, this is a very severe punishment. But the law of, of Moses was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Exodus 21, 24. And so grabbing a man violently by the private parts can destroy his private parts. And that's also a very severe thing to do. And a harsh punishment was to deter people from trying to castrate or injure one another's private parts. So this is not so much a harsh law as it's a protection of the male genitalia. And the similar law, law, law was given for two men who were fighting and they injured a pregnant woman and the baby was deformed. They would suffer whatever the baby suffered. So this is actually a law protecting uh, human life and the ability to reproduce. There's no actual record of this punishment being carried out. But is it hypocritical for us as Christians to have this verse in the Bible, but to then condemn Islam for commanding the amputation of the right hand for stealing? And here's the thing. In the Quran, chapter 5, verse 38 where it institutes hand amputation for theft, that's injustice. That is not justice. Whereas to cut the hand off someone who tries to destroy a man's private parts is justice. It may be very harsh and rough justice, but it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth under the law of Moses, which we're no longer under that law anymore. So there are no... Christian or Jewish countries in the world where they cut people's hands off. But it is a, a problem in the Islamic world for theft. Um, the, 
Even castration of animals was forbidden in Leviticus chapter 22 verse 24. The closest to any harsh punishment like this was the amputation of the thumbs and big toes of King Adonai Bezek in Judah. Judges chapter 1 verses 4 to 7 because he had done the same thing to 70 kings. Here's the next thing. There were female captives in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 10 to 14. It says that if a woman was captured in war, she was not to be taken and raped, and a man wanted her, he had to make her his wife. She was not to be a slave. She was entitled to mourn for a whole month. And this was done to humanise her, to get the empathy of her soon-to-be husband. This law was put in, in place not to institute the rape of women, but to restrain it. Because in the ancient Near East, in wars, women were raped often on the spot. When the Muslims conquered Iraq... They killed a man in, um, in front of his wife and then they raped her on the dead body of her husband. That's when the Muslims conquered Iraq. In Deuteronomy, it gave restraint to this sort of behaviour. And furthermore, we're no longer under the law of Moses. So to the many atheists and Muslims who love to say, look at what Deuteronomy says, we don't follow that law anymore. And it was put in place to restrain evil, not to facilitate it. And then they claim that Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, uh, encourages rape. Let's have a look at what it says. Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29 says, If a man find a lady who is a virgin, who is not pledged to be married, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the lady's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has humbled her. He may not put her away, that's divorce her, all his days. So it says that if a man lies with a woman, takes a hold of her, and he gets caught, he would have to pay the father 50 shekels of silver, and he could never divorce her. Now people say this is referring to a rapist. No, it is not. The word to lays a hold of or seizes her is the Hebrew word tapas, which is used in Genesis chapter 39 verse 12, where it says that Potiphar's wife was attempting to seduce Joseph. She didn't rape him. She didn't force him. She tried to seduce him and she'd say, Joseph, come to bed with me and he wouldn't do it. So this is referring to a man who seduces a woman, not rapes her. The word for rape, the Hebrew word hazach, is used elsewhere for rape, but not here. So it's saying that if a man persuasively seduced a woman, he would have to marry the girl and never be allowed to divorce her. And this 
was put in place to stop women from being discarded because a woman that had lost her virginity was treated as used goods, was treated as not very valuable. And this was a law put in place to protect the dignity of women. The next accusation is that there are scientific absurdities in the Bible, such as talking horns in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, or seven-headed beasts in Revelation chapters 13 to 17. Now, I once saw Muslims who responded to an attack on the Koran, chapter 27, verse 18. It talks about King Solomon and an ant that was talking about him. Solomon succeeded David. He said, No, my people, we have been taught the tongue of birds and endowed with all good things. Surely this is the signal favour. His forces of jinn and men and birds were called to Solomon's presence and ranged in battle array. When they came to the valley of the ants, an ant said, Go into your dwellings, ants, lest Solomon and his warriors should unwittingly crush you. Now, ants cannot talk. They communicate through smell and scent, but they don't talk, and that's a scientific fact. But Muslims have turned this around and said, ah, but your Bible has talking horns in Daniel chapter 7 and beasts with seven heads, which is really just a way of saying you're as scientifically ludicrous as us. But here's the thing, Daniel and Revelation are symbolic apocalyptic books. They're not literal. Whereas Solomon in the Koran and the Bible is a literal historical person. And they're telling us in chapter 27 of the Quran, verse 18, that ants talk. The next attack is to say Christians eat pork, even though it was forbidden by Moses in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7. And the Quran also forbids pork in the Quran chapter 5, verse 3. Well, in response to that, I would point out that the only thing Muslims are forbidden to consume is pork and alcohol. And they claim that they're following the law of Moses. They absolutely are not, because the law of Moses allowed drinking of alcohol. Yes, the law of Moses forbade pork, but they also forbade eating camels. In Leviticus 11.4, rabbits chapter 11, verse 5, aquatic species like shellfish, Leviticus 11 and 9 to 12. Now, Muslims eat camels and rabbits and shellfish. And those creatures are declared just as filthy for people to eat then. So I'm going to look overall at the, at the how these eating requirements evolved in the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, it says that God gave Adam and Eve green plants to eat, but he forbade them from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we could argue because they were forbidden certain fruits, we should be forbidden certain fruits as well. 
Then in Genesis chapter 9, Noah was told that he could eat all animals that walk on the earth. So that would include pigs and shellfish and camels. Then in Leviticus chapter 11, under Moses, God restricted the diet to make the Israelites a distinct people. So there was no rabbits or camels or pigs or shellfish for them to eat. And then the new covenant was to include all nations as God's people, which Jesus instituted. And in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 19, Jesus declared all foods clean and said it's what goes into a man does not make him unclean, but sinful thoughts from the heart. In Acts chapter, chapters 10 and 11, Peter had a vision of God in which he was told, take, kill and eat, where he saw unclean animals. And he said, surely not, Lord. But God said, don't call unclean what God has made clean. So pigs and camels and shellfish were unclean from the time of Moses till the time of Jesus. And then Jesus declared all foods clean. God went and spoke to Peter, the first pope, and told him, don't call unclean what God has made clean. In Acts chapter 15, the other apostles affirmed this. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, Paul said that forbidding certain meats is a doctrine of demons. And then 600 years later, Muhammad invented his own religion, but he forbade only pork and alcohol, but didn't forbid camels and rabbits and shellfish. And science has proven that lean pork is 89% protein and is one of the richest sources of protein that you can eat. There are many other absurd attacks on Christianity. One is that people were stoned to death in the Bible for sins like breaking the Sabbath. And those were the harsh laws under Moses. But in John chapter 8, there was a woman who was going to be stoned to death and Jesus said he who is without sin cast the first stone and then he said to the woman I do not condemn you go and sin no more so we're in a covenant of mercy not in a covenant of stoning people to death another ridiculous and laughable accusation that's made against Christianity is that is by Yusuf Estes, who claims that Catholicism was started in 300 BC by the Greek Alexander the Great, who was in Rome. The reality is Alexander the Great never went to Rome. He died in 323 BC, or 23 years before 300 BC. Catholicism was started in 33 AD by Jesus. Another accusation is that Christianity is an immoral religion responsible for sexual immorality, gay marriage, wife swapping, pornography, all manner of sexual immorality, and that Christian women are, in inverted commas, naked because they show their faces. Well, that, of course, is rubbish. 
that's insane. In Genesis 38, it was prostitutes who veiled their faces. And so I do not respond to that rather ridiculous notion of what they call modesty. According to fightthenewdrug.org, which is a website which looks at um, porn usage around the world, they found that the top nations with the biggest shares in adult websites were Iraq, Egypt, and then Serbia, Japan, and Germany. But the top two out of the top five were Muslim countries. They found the countries with the longest viewing of porn were Kuwait, followed by Singapore, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. So three out of the top five nations had the longest viewings of porn, and Singapore and South Africa have sizable Muslim communities. The countries that did the most porn searching were Pakistan at number one, Egypt at number two, Iran at number four, Morocco number five, Saudi Arabia number seven, and Turkey at number eight. So six of the top eight porn searching countries were Muslims. And that comes from the Express Tribune, January 18th, 2015, under the title, Pakistan tops the list of the most porn-searching countries. According to the UN Women, ArabStates.UNWomen.org says 37% of Arab women have suffered violence, usually domestic violence. 133 million have experienced female genital mutilation. In Egypt, 92% of women aged 15 to 49 years have suffered female genital mutilation. And while FGM is not officially sanctioned by Islam, Islam's negative attitude towards women and the need to repress women's sexuality is the reason why it happens. 14% uh, of Arab girls are married under the age of 18. And rape victims were often forced to marry their rapist in Morocco until 2014. Rapists were often shown leniency if they married their victim. And 60% of female victims of violence do not speak up. According to official statistics, Egypt is supposed to be one of the lowest countries in the world for rape. Apparently, they claim it's 20,000 per year. In reality, it's actually 10 times higher at 200,000 women per year. But women are often stigmatised for being raped. The dress code is no deterrent for rape. And it's an epidemic problem in Egypt. 30% of girls and 21% of boys in Egypt have been sexually abused. Egypt is one of the most common countries in the world for forced marriages, rape and abductions of girls, particularly Christians, Christian girls by Muslim men. And during the 2011 to 2014 
Egyptian Revolution, there were public rapes of women. The New York Post in July the 2nd, 2013, says Dutch female reporter gang raped by five men in a violent Egyptian protests. It says she was raped in public in the Tahrir Square in Cairo at protests against Morsi's rule. The same night saw 44 sexual assaults on women, including a grandmother and a seven-year-old girl. The Egyptian Centre for Women's Rights did a survey in 2008, and they found 83% of Egyptian women and 98% of foreign women in Egypt had experienced sexual harassment at some time but only 12% have reported it to the police. Over 62% of Egyptian men admitted to harassing women. 53% of them blamed the woman for bringing it on. And Fox News, December 5th, 2012, looked at how Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood accused of paying gangs to rape women. So the Muslim Brotherhood uh, paid people to rape, paid men to rape women. It was done against women who protested against their regime. So wearing hijabs, burqas, niqabs doesn't stop or lessen sexual harassment and sexual assault. We also look at the failure of every Sharia-enforcing nation. The Arab saying is Muslims vote for Sharia in their own country, then flee to a secular country to get away from it. And in addition to that, the Muslims accuse Christians of being lewd and of not following proper modesty. But we see that is no deterrent to sexual assault. So these are the attacks that have been made on uh, Christianity. Thank you for listening.